the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah. I'm Sarah Pyon, your host, and today I have Jesse Horton from Loud. Jesse is a visionary leader, chief executive officer at Loud, which is an award-winning cannabis company that embodies the art of urban craft cultivation. Jesse, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you, Sarah. Very happy to be here. I appreciate it. So you're up in Portland, right? That's right. That's right. Good old Portland, Pacific Northwest. I love Portland. It's such a beautiful place. Um, I'm all, I'm actually in Oakland, but we go to Portland a lot because we have a lot of friends there. It's well, you know, a lot of us Californians like to go there, but I promise I won't stay. If I go there are far too many of us coming up there. And messing with the real estate. Um, I wanted to start out, like I I often do, with asking you what your first experience with cannabis was like. Sure. Uh, Well, you know, I I started uh, consuming cannabis when I was in high school. So um, I think it was pretty typical of most high school. It's kind of after school. First time you consume, you don't really get high, try it one more time, and then it's kind of like off to the moon. So I was, um, I actually was, you know, not a really good math student at the time, was not a good student for the most part, but especially math. And then I I think maybe I had some form of ADHD and I just couldn't settle down for long enough to figure things out. So um, around the time when I started consuming cannabis, a lot of that changed, and you know, instead of me going out and hanging out with friends, sometimes I would just sit at home and uh, do homework. Um, and you know, that was kind of a transitional period for me—not just experiencing cannabis, but also kind of becoming um, a better student as a result, and then seeing more opportunities uh, after that. That's you know, that's really interesting because it's something we we talk about a little bit you know, especially in the advocacy area, but I don't know that we have as many conversations out in the open about the fact that for some of us, for a lot of us, cannabis really helps with creating, you know, concentration. Because I I have a little bit of ADD myself, and I don't know, I don't know if you can call it a little bit, but (laughs) I found, (laughs) you know, I use a, these days I've been using a tincture that's, equal parts CBD and CBG that really helps me get rid of like, you know, the Monday scaries where I'm sitting here at my desk going, okay, where do I start with this week? Cause I have so much going on. It's, it's really amazing how, how much that can really help create balance for us and just how much neurodiversity comes into play with how we respond to cannabis. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you start learning more about the endocannabinoid system and learning about the different strains and the different compounds, you know, how you can utilize that to to improve your quality of life uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, it's kind of a light bulb moment um, for a lot of us stoners and just the idea that, you know, there's a lot of functional good uh, to cannabis outside of just, you know, the euphoric effects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when I was reading your bio, I saw that you're an engineer. That's right, that's right. Um, I was really able to utilize that that math boost 
um, and kind of find my my home um, because, you know, I actually ended up being a really good math student and uh, engineering was a really great um, kind of next step for me to do more, you know, applied mathematics and understanding how that math can really help me um, to to build things, you know, in a lot of different ways. So that was a fun transition and I had a good time uh, getting that degree in school. That's very cool. And when when did you decide to make the transition to working in cannabis and how did you choose your area in cannabis? Yeah, um, so actually I was um, over in Munich, Germany for about a year and a half. Um, and when getting, I was at Siemens headquarters. I was at a German uh, engineering firm. Got a chance to go overseas to their headquarters. Um, and when I got the offer to come back to the U.S., um, they told me I can go to Portland or to New York. For a number of reasons, um, I was getting kind of tired of the corporate aspect of things. And Portland was, you know, anything other than corporate. So I decided to jump in and come to Portland. I uh, ended up not really enjoying my job because um, I was doing sales and it just wasn't my forte. But um, I actually also started growing cannabis in my basement. And uh, that's kind of my first entry into the industry was just kind of growing in my basement to my to my garage and then really expanding in cultivation from there. That's really cool. That's really cool. And when did Loud start? When did you just, When did you get the vision to be able to make that happen? Yeah, at first I wanted to have a dispensary, and then I, you know, wasn't able to find the location. So I decided to go a little deeper into cultivation. Um, and around 2017. Um, as things were moving to the recreational or kind of, you know, the recreational market was growing, becoming more of a thing here in, in Oregon, um, I decided uh, to, to move from medical cannabis growing to recreational. And in doing that, you know, I really just wanted to, to find um, not only a way to add value to the market, you know, through flowers and craft cultivation, but you know, a way to, 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 I guess, add value, um, to, to what I was doing on a daily basis. And, you know, as I got into it, retail just wasn't, wasn't the best for me. So we decided to expand from medical to recreational and then build a brand, um, that was really just focused on who we were, um, Pacific Northwestern, um, people, I, you know, I've only been there for about 10 years, but very much identify with, with the way of life, um, the cannabis culture, and decided to build a brand around that. Um, you know, Loud is kind of our connection to, to what we, you know, coined as some of the best cannabis, really loud attributes, great smell, um, great effects, um, and utilize a number of other things that we feel like really um, are a piece of the the cannabis culture, right? That sometimes seems a little taboo nowadays. Wrapped all that up into a into a brand called Loud and launched it um, in 2020. Actually, we're coming up on a year pretty soon. Wow! And you know, for coming up on a year and being in Oregon, 
you've done a lot with your brand because a lot of people outside of Oregon actually know who you are, which is, it's, it's pretty amazing because there's like, you know, there are MSOs where people see their presence in every state. But normally when we're looking at, you know, especially like state companies that are in certain states, they may be well known in the state that they're housed in, but maybe not as much outside of the state. And you've, you've really kind of changed that because I, I think, I think most people who are looking at the cannabis scene from like a lar- a larger standpoint, see you. And that's, it's just what you've done. I mean, I was looking at the website and everything. You've just done a lot. Well, and, and in addition to doing your cultivation, you've just done a lot to change how cannabis is done and how we look at it because you, what year did you co-found the Minority Cannabis Business Association? Yeah. Um, well, you know, that's good to hear because, uh, you know, sometimes I have my head down and I'm not really focused um, on what anybody's talking about, just trying to focus on on the work and getting things accomplished. Um, and I think the brand has done has done very well, I think mainly because, you know, we connect with a lot of the stoners, um, the, the people who feel maybe a little bit left behind in the evolution of the cannabis industry. Um, and I've also, I think the brand also benefited from a lot of my nonprofit work. Uh, we started MCBA in 2014, actually, um, a couple years after I started growing in my basement uh, with some really dope people from across the nation and got a lot of really cool things done. So a lot of people know me for um, the advocacy work as well as cultivation and, and industry work. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, I think it's super important for people to have a seat at the table to talk about how the cannabis industry should look and how it should be run and making sure that everybody who should be included is included. I remember. Yeah, I think we. Oh, no, what are you going to say? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, just, I, think, I think we have a real big opportunity uh, to, to build a really dope industry. So it's important that we um, we're very thoughtful uh, every chance we can. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, um, I was one of the co-chairs for the San Francisco Legalization Task Force for three years, and now I'm on the oversight committee for San Francisco, though I don't do work with leadership anymore. It's a, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's an honor to do the work, but it's also, there's a lot of work to do. And I think that we have a unique opportunity to change the way that business is done even outside of cannabis with the models that we can create within the cannabis industry around, you know, equity, um, you know, really, and even though we're not seeing as much of a leveling of the playing field right now, because there's a lot of stuff to sort out. I think that if we continue the work, we can do that, create greater accessibility. And also like when we're looking at other states that aren't allowing people to grow at home, I think we can, we can change that too. It's, it's all about educating our policymakers instead of having people with deep pockets whispering in their ears, actually getting them to understand why it's important that we create accessibility for all and abundance. Yeah, hundred percent. I think um, we could definitely be a beacon uh, for other industries on how to do things right, or um, you know, another example on you know how to do things wrong. I think uh, we could easily go 
in either direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I feel very fortunate for passionate colleagues like you who are pushing in the direction of it going well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people out there, um, luckily, you know, uh, who are been able to make a lot of traction in a lot of these different areas, the equity, sustainability, small business growth, community uplift, um, that have really helped to, to break down barriers because trust me, if those people weren't in those legislative halls and they weren't, you know, having some of those sleepless nights and, and organizing things, uh, would look a lot different than they do now. I mean, even if there was legalization at all, which I don't think there would be without those, you know, those real grassroots activists. So, you know, there's a lot of people like that around the country. And I think it's important that, you know, they be celebrated and that we figure out um, ways to to make sure that um, their work is is alive and well um, in the in the thriving industry. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that you're you're working on something with Ben Cohen. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, sure. So um, I've known Ben for a couple of years, actually, probably since 2015. We were first introduced um, in the industry and just kind of kept in touch um, since then. Uh, he recently started a cannabis company called Ben's Best, where, um, you know, he's come in with his, with his advocacy hat um, that he typically has and, and, and wears proudly um, in business. And, you know, wants to figure out a way to uh, build on that legacy by, you know, making sure that he's utilizing this cannabis industry in ways that um, repair some of the harms that have been done uh, through the war on drugs, uh, which cannabis was a major, uh, major, major part of. So with Ben's best, um, he is doing a, a low THC pre-roll, high quality, high terpenes. Um, and utilizing suppliers that, um, you know, are, are diverse suppliers, as well as giving opportunities for other business hopefuls and business owners to carry this brand uh, as it gets bigger uh, so that they can continue to differentiate. So I think what uh, he's doing is, is excellent in that he's showing that um, the prosperity of the industry, right, can can be utilizing for good by having diverse suppliers and getting quality products out there um, that utilize these suppliers. But also he has um, decided to give a hundred percent of the profit to causes uh, like um, my, my nonprofit, the new leaf project, which focuses on grants and low percent um, low interest loans for black and brown uh, owners in the cannabis industry, as well as the last prisoner project, and some other uh, local um, initiatives in the uh, in the states where it will operate. So essentially, it's just a really great example of how people can use amazing influence and power um, in in business to uh, to to create good um, economically and and socially. Yeah, that's amazing, and I I love what you're doing with the New Leaf Project because we need to have a lot more support for people starting their businesses or, you know, like one of the things that I found was interesting and, and a little in the beginning, a little, little frustrating. Um, 
I well, I got into cannabis because in my late thirties I had cancer, and before that I worked in nonprofit and specifically in civil rights. And when we started looking at legalization in California, and we were talking about equity, the first thing that was coming out of people's mouths that weren't necessarily in the industry, some of them were, but was more about job opportunities. And that's very well and good. That's cool that they're creating job opportunities. But when I was thinking about equity, I was thinking, why not more of a seat at the table? Why are we not looking at helping people create their businesses? Or like when we were talking about the traditional market, I remember in a meeting I brought this up and people kind of looked at me like I was nuts. But I was like, hey, instead of busting people, for cultivation because what you're looking at are creative driven entrepreneurs why don't we have a pamphlet that helps them like and create easy pathways to actually have a business that they don't have to be looking over their shoulder yeah yeah you got it you got it um lowering the barriers of entry so that uh people can find their way into the the regulated market um yeah, extremely important. And I think that career opportunities are important, as you mentioned. But um, essentially, you know, you got to create business owners uh, in order to, to keep that going. Uh, you got to create business owners who are hiring from the communities um, that they're from. You got to create business owners that are providing opportunities um, for uplift in those same communities. I think um, you, know, you definitely missed the boat if you're only uh, focused on career. And, you know, not only that, there's a lot of people, a lot of growers, a lot of um, people who have been in this traditional market that, you know, um, if they don't, uh, if they can't get in themselves, they will continue to operate in the uh, traditional or illicit market. And um, that's not going to be good for the industry. That's not going to be good for patients and consumers who want tested products so it's it's in everyone's best interest to um to create uh easy pathways of entry for these entrepreneurs mm-hmm. how has how have your grant cycles been going uh they've been well um so you know when it comes down to the day-to-day i'm definitely not the uh, my, my wife jeanette uh, Ward Horton is the executive director, and I'm I'm just on the board of the organization. But um, I can tell you at this point, we have uh, we will cross over the million dollar mark in grants and zero um, percent actually interest loans that uh, that we've awarded um, in the industry so far, and that is through partnerships, not just with Ben's Best, but also with the city of Portland, utilizing Canada's tax dollars as well as um, other uh, small businesses like like Loud, like my, my small business donating, as well as very large businesses like Scott's Miracle Grove um, being one of the largest donors. Again, all focused on figuring out ways that we can utilize the prosperity of the industry um, with tax dollars, as well as uh, with the economic prosperity that companies, um, most companies or some companies are experiencing. That's awesome. That's really awesome because there's, you know, we, there's just so many, well, has anybody, have any other states or cities 
talk to both of you about replicating your model to be able to, to further the cause and be able to help people in other areas? Yeah, you know, um, there, there have been some discussions. Uh, I think we're, you know, we're such a small, small staff and spread very thin that we're, we're doing our best to, to service uh, the entrepreneurs that we have in Oregon. We have a really thriving small business community, um, lower barriers of entry for people like myself, people who don't come from, um, you know, financial means and maybe have had issues with um, the criminal justice system uh, as a result of cannabis possession. Um, a lot of those people have major opportunities in the state of Oregon. So we've been focused here, um, but definitely see opportunities to expand. We've done some loans in Colorado as well as in Texas through Ben's Best. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens in other states. But, I, you know, I will say that uh, it, it's a model that um, is continuing to to develop as far as, you know, how to be uh, efficient in this work, how to be effective, how to track your work, how to do the reporting, show that, you know, these dollars are going to the right sources and are being tracked in the right way and are being effective towards our goal. Um, so I think that, you know, we're learning from what other states and other, other cities are doing. And um, we believe that, you know, that's happening on the other end. So I, I think no one's really figured it out. We're just happy to be uh, a part of the group that, that's trying. That's awesome. I uh, A few episodes ago, I had Angela White from Success Centers on. And Ms. Angela, she had worked in a dispensary before she started doing the work with Success Centers. Um, and I've just been really excited to see just all the different people who are who are stepping up to help lift everybody else up and to just create these opportunities because it's it's crazy it's i've been working in cannabis now for it's almost 10 years and it's just been really interesting to see like in the medical times you know how there were a lot of people who were thriving and then as we started to get into legalization, how difficult it was to keep doing business. I mean, there were some good changes that happened, especially around like testing being required. But there were a lot of hardships that happened due to overregulation. And I, I really when I go to other states, because I do a lot of lecturing on policy and education in states throughout the United States, especially states that are just starting out or they're they're about to and I'm always amazed at how people are constantly reinventing the wheel instead of learning from others you know successes or mistakes um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on stuff like that um, yeah it's uh, it, it is interesting you know as you see different regulations roll out um, and how people you know I was just in, in Vegas, and uh, I was learning how in Ohio um, they've decided to do their sales increments in tenths and not in eighths. And it's like, you know, it's, it's like every single other state is a, a, a method for how people are weighing cannabis, and this uh, state has decided to, you know, change it up completely. And everyone has their own idea on how things, you know, should be regulated. And, you know, I think everyone has their own perspective on whether or not certain policies work or whether they don't. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I do understand, at least from a regulation standpoint, to a certain degree, 
um, because it, you know, it's regulating a new industry. Um, there's different voters and different legislators who have different interests, and um, it's definitely screwing things up in a in a lot of ways. But and also, it's, it's hurting small businesses' opportunity to kind of remain competitive when you have these changing regulations. Um, but I think with that, uh, for you know, small business owners like myself, or you know, people who are really looking for ways to differentiate and find their ways in the market, a lot of these changes or nuances or market gaps that result from um, poorly thought-out regulations, a lot of times um, can can open up business opportunities for those who are on top of it um, and open up partnership opportunities and open up opportunities to revisit things and maybe figure out ways to include the community um, in some of these different decisions a little more than we have. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely upset, but I'm more and more thankful for the opportunity to, to continue to find ways to get it right. Um, I guess that's just kind of like my entrepreneur always try to find the glass, you know, half, half full even though, um, you know, it may only be a quarter full as opposed to being half empty. <laughs> well, that's that's definitely the mindset that you have to have to succeed, right? I'm surprised Ohio is doing tents. That's so weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I Somebody gave me these pencils that say, weed taught me the metric system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Many of us. <laughs> It truly did. It's it's a, such a weird thing, and I found that like state culture has a lot to do with how people decide to to do their policies as well. Which, you know, I guess you, you think about it a little bit when you like visit a state, but it's not until you really start to delve into their policy and get to know people who are creating it that you really see how how strong that is. Like we are really like each, each of the States has their own culture. We're almost like we have a lot of similarities, but in some ways we're, we're like our own little countries and you don't really think about it because, you know, we all, we all have, I mean, there are lots of different languages of course that are spoken in the United States, but then I say that as a first generation kid, but you know, there's but underlying, you know, we have the predominantly like English speaking nations. So you think, oh, we're all gonna be kind of we'll have some similarities. We're all, you know, United States citizens and then you go into these other states and you're like, Wow, it's different. It's different. And maybe mm -hmm. it was like a little naivete for me because you know, I'm from the Midwest. Like I grew up in northern Michigan and I've been living in California for going on twenty five years. And that, even though there was a little bit of a, there was definitely a difference. I think, you know, Californians are so chill that it was just kind of like, I just kind of slid into that culture. And I was like, yeah, here I am. And then you like go to Arkansas and you're like, ooh, here I am. <laughs> this is different. Very different. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's cool. But it's also like really, it's, um, it's fascinating to see how that affects the way people look at the very same substance. Yeah, certainly, 100%, without a doubt. Um, and, yeah, it's very interesting in this new age of legalization. So mm -hmm. it's a fun place to, to be. Yeah, so I was looking at your website, and I saw that you have what you call slag flowers, smoke like a grower. Is that head stash? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That's kind of uh, that's kind of the idea. And that you know, as a grower, 
the best thing about being a grower, you know, and a weedhead, I would say, or, you know, stoner is that, you know, you spend so much time with these plants. You really get to know the plants. You get to know the strains. You get to know the branches, you know. You're just in that room all the time. So um, when it finally goes and it starts drying and, you know, the, the, the harvest is done, it's ready to, to start trimming, the growers go in and they really get the best pick of the buds that are in there. They can go in and select this beautiful mid-sized nug, um, very dense, no stem, you know, got the perfect amount of light um, and, and shade coverage. And then, you know, grab it off of the branch and essentially trim it as delicately as they as they would like to um, without touching the bud usually put it in a very great storage container we've got really amazing uv um resistant glass that's perfect for curing herbs and you know they essentially have that that perfect ounce or that perfect half ounce out of that out of that harvest and that's what we're creating with these slag jars and that me and my our post-production director will go in after every harvest, do exactly that, select the best buds, and we'll stick trim them. So, uh, you know, we're only touching the stick and never touching the buds directly, um, stick, stick trim the buds directly into those jars so that the people who then go and buy those, um, you know, you have to have a password, you have to be one of our best customers, uh, can then you know, smoke just like we do and be the first ones to touch the flowers um, before they get knocked around through packaging and handling and all those other things that we've kind of become accustomed to in the industry nowadays. So we think it's the truest essence of, of getting to those flowers, of smoking flower, and definitely it's the best part about being a grower. And people really, um, it, it resonates with our, our community of connoisseur smokers. Yeah, see, that's... That's something that I miss. Uh, I also, well, I'm not behind the bar anymore, but when I was, we used to measure out, and it was really one of one of the things that I miss are just, like, big, beautiful buds that haven't been broken up too much. And I know, like, with the way we have to package everything, it's unavoidable, but when I saw that, I was, like, remembering, like, back in the day when, you know, growers would come in and it was the people who grew it were the people who were you know bringing it into the dispensary and when you'd you'd become you know get to know a grower and you know it's like when you've been behind the bar for years you have relationships with your growers and every so often you get like a little bit of they they'd gift you a little grower stash and it'd just be like so precious <laughs> you'd be like yeah <laughs> right. yeah that's right nowadays you'll get or half ounce and you've got you know little what they call bee buds in there you've got a little you know you've got you're kind of smoking a little small buds first because you want to save the best buds for later and we just wanted to uh, you know give someone the chance to have that you know perfect perfect ounce with all the best buds yeah everyone should be able to experience it at least once to know what that's like because it's it changes the way you look at cannabis that's right that's right i agree I agree. So with the with the cultivars that you pick out, how do you do that? And do you do do you create some of your own genetics? Yeah, we're very serious about genetics at, at Loud. Um, it's one of the ways we really differentiate the company. Um, and one of the ways that we connect with those connoisseur consumers who, you know, really know the new genetics. They want to try the new genetics and they want something 
that they can't necessarily just get from from anywhere else. So we spend a lot of time hunting um, seeds and phenotype hunting, as they say, trying to find the best or our, you know, perfect representation of a certain strain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll bring those to market, right? It's kind of these loud hunted um, strains. But we also have uh, a couple of strains that we bred ourselves, kind of pollen chucking, as they say. We're not, you know, we're not breeders. We don't know a hell of a lot about it, but it doesn't take you know, a lot, right? It doesn't take rocket science. You, you get some pollen of, from a male that you really like and you dust it on the female that you love and hopefully you find something special. So we've done that a couple of times with a couple of our uh, genetics. And, you know, we also have, you know, just two actually right now classics um, that have come down from the original breeder's cut. So, you know, we kind of try to keep it, keep it in a mix, primarily strains that we've hunted, some some classic strains that have been gifted to us and then some um, that we've bred ourselves. That's very cool. And when we're talking about, you know, the farming of cannabis, what are, what are some of the values that are the most important to you and the practices that you found um, really help bring out the best in the flowers and that maybe you've worked on to, to perfect? I know a lot of people are really interested in the process. I know I am. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I think cannabis growing to me uh, is mostly about discipline. You know, it's um, about discipline and how you set up your facility and setting up your, your process. Um, you know, not, not leaving any stone unturned, always trying to constantly be improving. Um, but also, I think, um, so with that discipline and kind of focusing on these very small steps of this complete process, I think from a macro level, um, what I've learned more than anything uh, to apply is just simplicity and that um, you have to really just allow the plant to to thrive um, and not try to do too much to guide the direction of the plant. Um, I think that's something that uh, is a little bit counterintuitive for most business people in general, um, especially I think growers and indoor growers who have all this equipment and all these things they're trying to dial in. Um, a lot of times you, you have to, um, you know, set up lanes or kind of give, give certain paths, right. For that plant to, to, to move very freely. Um, but at the same time, you've got to be very simple and not try to force it in any direction. Don't try to force yield. Don't try to force trichome coverage. Don't try to force taste or smell. You've got to let the genetics do what they do. So I think that's, that's really the, the most important principle that I've learned and I'm always, that I always go back to is, you know, first being very process oriented and, and disciplined in your process, in, in your facility and your setup but then um, very, very simplistic in, in what, you, what you do to the plant to allow it to reach its, its peak of, of health. Mm-hmm. What are some of your, your favorite cultivars? Um, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say it is. <laughs> but I like, um, you know, ones we, we grow 503 Wi-Fi, so Wi-Fire OG, Fino that we hunted that, you know, still is one of my favorite, you know, eight years from now. 
from when we uh from when we first started growing it. I would say, um, you know, I, I love, uh, I really like gelato crosses and, and things that are going on right there as you move on into the runs and those types of things. I, I like those those profiles. Um, I'm really heavy on OG, uh, definitely kind of like a connoisseur type of, you know, never get tired of it, at least me. Type of uh, type of strain. Um, I, I think those are some of my some of my go tos right now. I've been noticing too that there is like you know, of course, we always go through different trends with what genetics are popular. I know when I first when I first started, that was when cookies were really exploding and things like Cherry AK. But now we're starting to see like even some legacy genetics starting to pop back up, which has been really nice. And then some that are kind of just legendary. Like I, I picked up a, a hash the other day that was an OGKB cross, and I was like, whoa, I haven't seen this in a while. Have you been seeing any sort of uh, – what are you seeing as far as, like, trends with genetics? Are you seeing – I know there's there's always going to be new stuff, but have you been seeing, like, some of the legacy genetics popping up in Oregon too? You know, not you know, I I haven't spent a lot of time at dispensaries, so I'm you know I'm kind of head down. Um, I, I hear that. I, now and then, I, I would say I've, I've seen less, less and less strain diversity as of lately. Um, and I think because of that, you're starting to see people really delve or try to find those, those legacy strains and those um and try to do different crosses. But I've you know I've definitely seen things move predominantly um towards you know a number of different strains the sherbs the animal cookies the the cookies in general um the gmos purple punches um wedding cake heavy cushman well you know i've seen a lot of that i would love to see some of the older stuff you know things that i think have kind of somewhat disappeared because of lack of thc percentage um like you know, a lot of the cheeses, the blueberries, um, some of those profiles that you know you just don't don't see quite as much anymore. Yeah, I I really miss those. I actually found what was it, not too long ago, uh, somebody had given me some some blueberry cookies, and I was like, whoa, I haven't had this in a really <laughs> long time. And then it made me think of like the DJ short blueberry, which was just so good. And I started to think, huh, I wonder, you know, who's still collecting these genetics. Cause I used to have like, I used to collect a lot of seeds and of course, you know, you collect them and then <laughs> I, uh, I misplaced them somewhere. And I was just like, ah, <laughs> how many people have this story? <laughs> you know, or like what what happens when somebody comes across that lost bag of seeds and you know that's it's just an interesting thing to think about like I had a uh, patient who used to come in all the time and he had he had a space in Santa Cruz that he used to rent to somebody and when he took the space back he he came in and he was like yeah you know I've got these old Colombian gold seeds and you know, he had he had uh, a Panama red, and he was like, "What should I do with them?" I was like, "Pop those beans, see what happens." You know, they're if they were 
stored correctly, you shouldn't have a problem with them. And it's, I always get really excited to see people, you know, popping legacy seeds and seeing what they're like. Cause I, I still, I still think about all those seeds I had and wonder what the heck happened to them. And it's a sadness. I was like, I had, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even stuff like that. It was more like blueberry yum yums and Cali widow and, and things that we just don't see at all anymore. And I just, I, I really hope, I, I, I hope there's a way that we can kind of preserve some of the genetics and, and preserve the legacy of it. Although we've also had issues with projects that have been trying to map the genetics, like the stuff that we saw with Phylos a few years back. And so I kind of wonder, like, how, as our industry starts to grow and we are dealing with proprietary stuff, but we're also dealing with the legacy issues and, you know, just the fact that we've been Wild West for so long and people, you know, hold their genetics close to their chest. If we'll ever have an opportunity to fully, like, memorialize all the different genetics and things that we're doing without it being something that takes advantage of the cultivators and, and the geneticists that are working on these these plants. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I think there's so many things that are lost um, at this point. Uh, and I hope, you know, there's ways to kind of, kind of cross genetics to try to find those original traits of the mothers and the fathers. And you know, I think there's a lot to, to be said there and a lot of things to do. But, um, you know, I, was, I talk to some of my grower friends all the time, and you know, I've only been growing since 2012, so not even, not even 10 years. Um, when I was getting started, you know, it, it was going for 20 years and, and more before that at a, at a complex level with the way some of these growers were collecting genetics and crossing even then. So, you know, I talked to them and I'm like, man, can you, if you really knew what was going to happen, you know, now or what this would look like, or if you had the ability even to have a facility somewhere where you could just hold all the best genetics that you ran across, right? Back in the day in Oregon, you can get on Craigslist um, and find, you know, some of the best genetics out there, go to somebody's house and pick them up yeah. uh, for a cheap price and just collect them everywhere and really great stuff um, when I was moving here. So, man, it's, we all have lost uh, many, many gold mines by, you know, not even from a, from a financial perspective and what you can sell it for, but just from a smoker's perspective and being able to, to experience all those strains and, and that diversity of strains that we had back then, um, you know, would be would be amazing. And I think you know, every time I mention it, every grower that I talk to says exactly the same thing. I I agree 100%. You know, um, if we would have known about tissue culture back then or had those capabilities, the industry would be different in a lot of ways because a lot of us would, would have access. And you think about this big genetic pool that is cannabis, um, it's, it's just amazing and infinite in so many different ways. So... Uh, unfortunately, we've lost so many, but I think there's still a lot more to come as we we learn more about these genetics. Yeah, and w when you're thinking about more to come, what are some of the things that you're excited about in the future? Um, you know, uh, I would say I'm excited. You know, the thing that really excites most growers is, you know, 
new seed pops and new genetics. And, you know, there's always just these amazing profiles that are flavor profiles, smell profiles that are still yet to be found. Um, we're finding them every day. Uh, so I'm, I get excited about that, definitely, just from a, a pure grower's perspective. And I think maybe from a business perspective, I think interstate commerce and what a lot of these small businesses are looking for in places like Oregon is a chance to compete um, in other states with some of these larger corporations. So I'm, I'm excited about about that opportunity to compete. And I'm also excited about the, um, the myriad uh, good things that we can do for so many different communities across the, across the country, across the world, um, as this cannabis industry continues to be an economic powerhouse. Uh, and we just have uh, so many different things that we can do to uplift um, these communities. Uh, people ask me all the time, like, why do I do all these different nonprofit things or why do I focus on this or that when there's so much opportunity in the industry? And honestly, um, I understand their perspective, but I think what they don't understand is that I call it all the time low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's, it's not a lot of work. Starting MCBA, yeah, it was a lot of work in a lot of ways, but you know, there's so many people who wanted to do the same work and so many amazing, easy, good things to do that you get so much traction and you get so much momentum just by just by small effort. And and that's that's an amazing situation to be in uh, when you've got so much economic prosperity. So I'm excited about that as well. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, because, well, as as a as a biracial woman myself and i think about like the word minority and i think gosh we're not really we're not really the minority anymore so what happens like you know when we talk about like changing of language like even the lexicon of like cannabis has changed right but how are we going to look at it like when we're looking at just creating opportunity for people who have who have not been able to have opportunities but we're not necessarily the minority anymore i wonder like what our language is going to be like around that in the future i mean it's 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 an interesting thing and i what are your thoughts on that because i just feel like the world has changed so much especially like from when like i was a kid like i'm i'm a child of the 70s i was born in 73 and so like growing up biracial was an interesting thing, especially like in northern Michigan, where almost everybody is white and speaks English. Well, it's changed now. But when I was growing up, that was it. And like coming to California was huge for me because I was like, wow, other brown people and other languages. And this is like super cool because I had just this very homogenous upbringing with with a white mom and a Middle Eastern dad. And then as, you know, being here and realizing that, like, we have, like, these, this language that we use where, like, you know, talking about minorities and things like that. And then you start to realize that there are more, more of us than there are of, like, white folks. <laughs> so, right. Well, I wonder how that language is going to change. And I, and I know this is kind of like going off topic in some ways, but what are, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. Um, I think about it. I've thought about it a lot, you know, especially as we were naming, uh, MCBA, I think 
you know, what I try to focus on, Sarah, like kind of go back to the whole Shakespeare, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And that, you know, I've, I've, I was born in the 80s. You know, I, I heard the time when, you know, you're supposed to be African-American. But what if you're not supposed to be African-American? You're black. And then before it was Negro. And then now you people think Negro is okay. And before you said it was colored people. But now people say people of color. So it's like, I, I just don't, you know, I try not to focus on it. And I think that, you know, as we were looking at Minority Cannabis Business Association, um, I think, you know, it's, I don't see it as lesser. You know, I think people yeah. hear the word minority. I think by the definition, I mean, it's lesser in number. And I think if you look at our individual groups compared to white people, I think it's still symbolic in that um, we have less opportunities from a, from a numbers perspective. I think that, uh, I think it's still, it still is relevant um, just simply from that's that simple idea that there are less black people, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, whether or not call it minority or not i don't look at it as lesser um just lesser in number to me uh has never meant less significant or worse you know my fraternity a common saying is um eight you know eight among 80 you know eight out of 80 right i'd rather have eight men thoroughly immersed than 80 with lukewarm enthusiasm so i I don't know. I, I definitely don't look at it like that, but I understand how people do. It's just that I, I feel like once we start to focus on those conversations, then it begins to have less significance. For example, um, for a long time in the cannabis industry, um, you know, I was I was heard that, you know, we shouldn't say black market, right? It became one time we had a conversation for 30 minutes in a meeting about how black market and you shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that because it's racist. I mean, and then when you look at it, the black market is used in so many different terms, like Rolexes and watches, like the black market. It's not because black people are selling Rolexes, you know, on the illegal market. Um, when you look at that term, it came out of China. So it, it's not really a racist term, but it's easy to see how people connected to that and now we're talking about all these other things as opposed to talking about the real issues like license limits and these things, right? So, you know, I, I understand it, but I think that um, to a certain degree, it detracts from a lot of things that we're trying to get accomplished because five years from now, there will be another conversation. As I mentioned, you know, the idea of calling people colored people was racist. But now if you don't say people of color then you're racist. So it's like, I just, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. It is. There's a lot to navigate. And then there's also, you know, now we're starting to turn that bend where people are saying, well, do we want to say people of color? And it, it's like, okay. I didn't know we were turning. Yeah, so I didn't know that it covers that. Here we go. <laughs> I always thought that was, when, and that's what we were looking at MCBA. People were like, no, it shouldn't be minorities, people of color. And I'm like, so does that mean white people don't have color? I mean, what are we talking about here? You know what I mean? Of course, white people are a color. Yeah. So now we're back to colored, the idea of colored people. And that, to me, made me feel uncomfortable. So it makes sense that, you know, maybe some people are uncomfortable with that. But, oh, man, I've just seen so many different things change back and forth and a lot of things not get done and the real uh, issues not get solved. So I just try to let other people define that and 
work with what I know at the time. And then, you know, if we change it later, then I'll, I'll do that as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally hear that. And I, it kind of made me chuckle when you're like, no, white people have color because my, uh, my mom has this, uh, this drawing that I did as a kid in her living room. I think I was like in first or second grade and she went to parent teacher conferences and her, my teacher was like, you really have to see this, Barbara. And I, apparently I explained it as, I was like, you know, this is, this is, you know, my mom. She, or actually I was like, this is my dad. He's really dark. And it was like, the crayon was to the point where it was just like shiny, shiny brown crayon. <laughs> and then it was like, here's me, I'm tan. And then my brother is, is like, is, is lighter than me. So I put my brother as, you know, what was called flesh colored at the time. And then my mom, because she's Scandinavian, she was just an outline. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. I don't have any (laughs) And it was like, you know, through the eyes of a child. It's like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. We all have our thing. And my mom, my, yeah, I love that. And my mom still has that in the living room. And it's like, she she told me about it years later because I totally forgot about it. And I was like, huh, all right, yeah, yeah, that's 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 about it. <laughs> but poor mom, we would always tease her. We'd be like, oh, mom, you're like you're like a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> poor mom, that's funny. <laughs> Well, oh, it's been so wonderful talking with you, Jesse. Thank you so much for for taking the time to be on the podcast today. And for our listeners, if they want to follow you on social media or your websites, what's the best way to do that? Uh, uh, thank you, sir. Um, you can find me at uh, Jesse Horton, J-E-S-C-E Horton uh, on Instagram, as well as LinkedIn. Um, New Leaf Project, N-U-L-E-A-S project.org and uh, at New Leaf Project on Instagram and you can find the company uh, loud www.loudlowd.com and at the loud on Instagram awesome thank you so much thank you for keeping your eye on the prize around you know social justice equity getting people to be able to have opportunities to work in this field if they want to and and actually own a, a piece of the pie because it's it's so incredibly important and just you know I'm really looking forward to the next time I get up to Portland checking out your flowers because they just look beautiful and my jaded ass doesn't get excited about much but I really like what you're doing I really, really appreciate it. And for those of you out there who want to follow Planted on social media, remember that we are two times a month now. You can listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there's a lot of other great podcasts as well. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, Apple, Google, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, we are there. We are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook, on IG. We are Planted with Sarah, Planted with Sarah on Twitter and www.plantedwithsarah.com for our website. Stay tuned. We will be in two weeks having another wonderful episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, 
we are not out of the woods yet with this pandemic. So stay safe. It's a crazy world out there. Be good to one another. And until next time, stay curious. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you.